In the summer of 2019, I announced that I was relocating, leaving Michigan, the state I've called home my entire life, so we could settle in Georgia. Our move was a byproduct of my husband's job with an Atlanta-based company. And one of the first questions people asked me is, will you still cover Michigan cases? And the answer is, of course. I love covering cases out of Michigan, revisiting areas where I've lived, worked, and visited, talking about crimes that left their mark on the community. In the almost six months that I've lived in the South, I've tried to learn all that I can about cases of interest in this state, and some of them are well known, like the 1996 Olympic bombing, or the disappearance of the Millbrook twins from Augusta, and I'm sure some of you have heard of Tara Grinstead, serial killer Wayne Williams, and the tragic death of high schooler Kendrick Johnson. What surprised me, and I mean really surprised me, is the lack of missing persons coverage. Not just in the press, but in social media. And yep, you'll find the usual suspects, listings on Nickmac or in NamUs, but it's not like Michigan, and what I want to say is that it's not like home, but I'm adjusting to the fact that Georgia is home. So if you're on Facebook or Instagram, you can follow Missing in Michigan, where we have a listing of missing people, from Adele Wells, a seven-year-old black girl who left her Flint home on November 21st, 1958. She was headed to school and would never be seen again. Or the January 2019 disappearance of 49-year-old Steve Millis from Hesperia. Millis was last seen at a local family dollar store, and while there is movement in his case, and it's quite likely that foul play was involved, his family, particularly his daughter, continues to advocate and push for answers. So in addition to the Missing in Michigan Facebook group, and the organization itself, which is run by law enforcement, there are several similar groups run by advocates. So when I got down here, I expected Georgia to have at least a couple of missing persons groups on social media. So listeners, imagine my surprise when I found several groups and pages on Facebook, but not one of them was well-populated or well-maintained. In fact, most of these groups contained information on less than a dozen missing persons, and the information they had, most of it was out of date because the person was recovered, but the post asking for that person's safe return was still up. So I decided that I would take on that project, that I would create a database of sorts on Facebook, one that would feature the names and faces of the missing, as well as law enforcement contact information. I did this in the hopes of bringing people home, and if they aren't ready to come home, let's be certain that they're at least safe. So in addition to featuring information on the missing, I included more than a dozen cases of unidentified human remains. Some of them have sketches of their face or photos of their personal items, while others just have a description and information about the when and where they were recovered. If you're not familiar with the work of Missing in Michigan, when a person is missing, the only thing we care about is locating them and bringing them home, whether that means reuniting them with friends and family or giving them the dignity of their name and identity if it was lost. My friend and mentor from Missing in Michigan, Mary Cross, she dedicated her life to helping the families of missing people. In her words, quote, 
In the world of the missing, there is no room for judgment. And it's really that simple. We don't judge a missing person. We see addiction, abuse, mental illness, illegal behaviors. And with each case that I come across, I use this. There is no room for judgment as a guidepost. But I have my own contribution to that. Everyone deserves to be safe. So if you want to check out this new group that I've created, and hopefully tell Georgia-based friends and family about it, the group is called Missing in Georgia, Cold Cases, and you can find it on Facebook. That's Missing in Georgia-Cold Cases. Today, we're going to talk about a case where it's unlikely that she will be recovered safely, but I believe we can all agree that she deserves to be recovered. Everyone deserves to be safe, remember. She deserves to be interred near her parents and loved ones, for her remains to rest beneath the headstone her family purchased for her when the grim realization settled that Ada Kelfi wasn't going to call. She would not walk in the door with her dark hair swinging and a smile on her face. Ada was lost to those who loved her. They would never again hear her voice or the sound of her laughter, but they could, hopefully, find her remains and finally answer the question of, where are you? Today's case begins almost 40 years ago. We're in suburban Atlanta, and we're arriving at the tail end of a tumultuous relationship a pairing that was at best toxic and was quite possibly deadly. In the summer of 1981, Ada Marie Kelfie was 25 years old. The tall, slim brunette resided in Marietta and worked at an Atlanta brokerage firm. She'd been involved with one of the brokers in her firm, a 32-year-old by the name of James Pruitt. However, their relationship had challenges, And the nature of their relationship, well, that depended on who you asked. On one side, friends of James described Ada as difficult and poorly behaved. And then on the other side, Ada was a battered woman trapped in an abusive relationship with a man who controlled and diminished her. Based on stories in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution at the time, it's hard to know much about the specifics of their relationship but we know they worked together at a brokerage firm. Jim Pruitt was employed as a broker, and Ada worked in an administrative position, although I've read that she, too, was a licensed broker. We know that in the summer of 1981, the relationship, which started sometime in 1979, was ending, and it was ending poorly. The couple had reservations for dinner at Nikolai's Roof, an upscale destination on the top floor of the Atlanta Hilton. With the relationship in shambles, the long-anticipated dinner at Nikolai's would still take place, with Pruitt taking another woman and being joined by his brother and his brother's date for the evening. According to court records, on the day of the dinner, July 12, 1981, Kelfi called Pruitt's home repeatedly but received no answer. When she finally reached him on late Sunday afternoon, he told her that he didn't want to see her, nor did he want to speak to her. Kelfi arrived at his apartment, knocking on the door, asking to come in. Pruitt's brother responded to her knock and told her no, she couldn't come in, she should leave. But James Pruitt came out to the hallway, and he and Kelfi moved to the stairwell to talk. 
Over the next three to five minutes, the occupants of Pruitt's apartment, his brother, his date, and his brother's date, as well as the occupants of nearby apartments, heard raised voices. They heard screaming and a commotion. When a resident in another apartment looked out, they saw Kelfie crouched on the ground with Pruitt standing over her. It appeared that Kelfie was being restrained by Pruitt. He'd wrapped his tie around her neck, and the witness reported that Pruitt then struck her in the face. So not only was Kelfie on the ground with Pruitt standing over her, he'd wrapped his necktie around her throat and struck her. The resident-slash-witness was so distressed by what they saw that they immediately went to the phone and called police to report an assault. Pruitt's version of the loud scuffle near the stairway is that he told Kelfie they should go down to the parking lot to talk, and he gestured for her to go down the stairs first. When she started to descend, he turned and headed back to his apartment. At that point, she turned and grabbed his arm, pulling on him. He pushed her away, and she fell. When she fell, she kicked him in the groin, and that's when he wrapped his tie around her neck, trying to get her to calm down and stop attacking him. Pruitt and his companions left the apartment complex, headed for their planned dinner at the Atlanta Hilton. Kelfie and witnesses who lived at the apartments would give statements to police in their absence. Kelfie spoke to police that afternoon and provided her version of events, a version that was bolstered by Pruitt's neighbors who saw the scuffle, who saw Pruitt standing over Kelfie and striking her. Kelfie would never testify against Pruitt because she disappeared in October of 1981, just days before his court appearance. And we can't say what became of Kelfie and Pruitt's relationship between this incident in July and her disappearance in October. What we do know is that on the morning of Sunday, October 1st, Pruitt said that he and Kelfie left Marietta, headed to Cartersville for a fishing trip. On the way, they changed plans. Instead of going fishing, they would visit the mountains. And as the pair traveled, they began to argue. When they reached Dahlonega, Kelfie told him she'd had enough. She wanted out of the car. Pruitt would tell authorities that he stopped near the town square and she exited the vehicle, saying that she would hitch a ride back home. Pruitt, not wanting to spoil his outing, continued north, traveling to North Carolina before returning home that evening without seeing or speaking to Kelfie again. It was James Pruitt who reported Ada Kelfie missing on the evening of Tuesday, October 3rd. When Kenneth Siebold, the Lumpkin County Sheriff, spoke with the press about her disappearance a week later, he told them that he'd spoken to Pruitt, but needed to talk with him again because, quote, I've gotten too much incorrect information. After her disappearance, Ada Kelfie did not contact her family. She did not return to work, nor did she return to her apartment. Her bank accounts were not touched. Her credit cards were not used her personal items were left behind. When a month passed with no sign of their daughter, her parents, Walter and Stella, put up a $10,000 reward for information. But it didn't help. The person or persons who had information on what became of their daughter, well, they're not talking. So, listeners, did I mention that Pruitt had an arraignment the week of October 1st, 1981? Yeah, he had assault charges pending for the incident with Kelfie on the staircase in July of 1981, the incident we talked about earlier, 
where a resident in his apartment complex saw him wrap his necktie around Kelfie's neck and strike her in the face with his hand. And if I was a hard-boiled detective on a TV show, I would tell you this all sounds hinky, but you know that already. The timing of Kelfie's disappearance stinks. Thankfully, Assistant State Solicitor Terry Glisson did not come to play. In a January 17, 1982 story in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Glisson states that since Kelfie cannot testify, none of the statements she made at the time of the July assault can be admitted into evidence. But what can be admitted is the eyewitness testimony of residents of the apartment complex who saw the assault. She told the paper, quote, I have one witness who saw what happened at the top of the stairs and one who saw what happened at the bottom. Also mentioned in the story is that investigators uncovered an incident between Kelfie and Pruitt in February of 1980 that resulted in Kelfie sustaining a broken wrist. This means that the incident on the stairs in July of 1981 was not the first time Pruitt laid hands on Kelfie. It was the first time he would be prosecuted for it. And I'm also wondering about the work dynamic. Pruitt was older than Kelfie, and he was well-established in his career. When they started dating in 1979, Pruitt would have been about 29 years old, and Kelfie, she might have been 22. It would be interesting to learn if he had any sway over her job, if there could have been repercussions for her ending the relationship on her terms, rather than ending it on his. At the end of January 1982, Pruitt is convicted of assault in the July 1981 incident. This was a bench trial, and during the trial, Pruitt's date from July 12, a woman named Pamela Miles took the stand, and she would testify that Kelfie tried to embarrass Pruitt, which justified the blows she received. Miss Miles said, quote, If I had acted like she did, I would have expected that. <sighs> Let's just sit with her statement for a moment. If I had acted like she did, I would have expected that. So at the trial, Pruitt faced a maximum sentence of 12 months in jail and a $1,000 fine. Cobb County State Court Judge Michael Stoddard handed down a $1,000 fine and that Pruitt be confined for 12 months. But he would only have to serve 45 days in jail and he would serve the remainder on probation. So Pruitt serves six weeks in jail and pays a modest fine for his assault on Ada Kelfie. I did read that Pruitt would lose his brokerage license because of this conviction. From what I can tell, Pruitt has not had any other run-ins with the law. His name is quite common, making him hard to track down. In the almost 40 years since she went missing, Ada's parents and brother have passed away. I believe that she does still have a sister, as well as nieces and nephews, who are still hoping that she will be recovered and laid to rest near her family. As is the case with many of these older cases, the disappearance of Ada Kelfi is mostly forgotten, except for a mention in a July 1985 story in the Atlanta paper about domestic violence, and in that instance, the life and disappearance of Ada was reduced to a paragraph consisting of four sentences. If you have information on the location of Ada Kelfie, please contact the Lumpkin County Sheriff at 706-864-0414, and you can reference case ID 
1-800-273-0014. If you would like to learn about other cases similar to the disappearance of Ada Kelfi, please check out Missing in Georgia Cold Cases on Facebook. If you have comments, questions, or feedback, you can email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at alreadygonepod and on the web at alreadygonepodcast.com. Already Gone will return on January 15th with a full episode where we discuss the 2012 murder of Gross Point resident Jane Bashara. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone, and the creator of the Missing in Georgia Cold Case group on Facebook. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.